Michael Levitin, and this is episode 17 of The Tell. In my very early childhood, I used to correct other kids all the time. And at one point, some kids started crying, and my teacher came up to me and said something like, imagine how you'd feel if someone corrected you. And I was very baffled by this question. I answered just literally, well, but I really like being corrected. Why are we even talking about what I like? I mean, we all like different things, right? Um, I should be thinking about those kids' feelings, not about what I want things to be like. And she didn't really know how to respond to that. I still think this is one of the worst things that people say to kids. They ask, how would you feel if someone did that to you, rather than just confronting that everyone's feelings are different and (laughs) that we should talk about why that other kid feels that way. Um, And of course, this leads in mass to a society where everyone is just projecting their own feelings onto other people, sort of being blind to how different everybody is. Um, And that sometimes works. I guess that sometimes is consideration, like imagining how somebody else might feel. Um, But it doesn't work for me. You know, people have been trying to project what I'm going to feel or what's going on with me forever. And they're just missing too much information. You know, they don't know that I was raised by fanatically honest people and that I see everything as lies and that I hate anytime somebody's lying to me and that, that I went to family therapy camp. They don't know any of that. Like, they, that's all need to know information for them. I can't say, how would you feel if you went to family therapy camp? And you like, I'd have to say, how would you feel if you had lived my entire life for you to even start trying to guess what I would... Anyway, I understand I'm difficult, but the point here is that uh, there are a lot of stories um, where the turn is just finding out that somebody else's experience is not what you would have imagined it to be based on your own. Um, so this episode, we have stories from Gastor Almonte and Emma Lee Moss, uh, and you're going to see some people imagining what other people are going through, and it isn't what they're going through at all. This is episode 17 of The Tell. Before I begin, I want to apologize in advance. Uh, I got kids at home. Normally when I prep a story, my wife takes the kids out. This story involves sex, so I had to practice a story with a cold word the whole week. So, bear with me, you know. <laughs> so, me and Claudia were in her dad's room, and we about to play checkers. <laughs> you know. Glad to see you guys on board. You gotta understand, I fell in love with Claudia because she was uh, the cashier at the local VIM. You know, I don't know if you guys heard of VIM before. It's like a Foot Locker without hope. That's <laughs> what you do there, you know? It's just the best jeans and sneaker store in America, you know? So I go there and she was the cashier, you know, and I come up with my product and she waves me and she say, hey, hey, don't buy these. When it rains, the jeans are going to bleed and mess up your Tims. And I'm like, yo, you just saved me $120. $100 on these boots and 20 on these three-pair jeans. <laughs> you know, I need you in my life. <laughs> so I pursued her. Several combos at Crown Fried Chicken later. <laughs> Here we are in her dad's room, about to play checkers. <laughs> now, it's vital for you guys to know, earlier that summer, I got in a car accident, I broke in my arm. It was my first time playing checkers since the accident. I didn't realize... 
don't know if you know, you use both of your arms when you play checkers. <laughs> right? Like, just for tactical reasons. Like, even when you play by yourself, you want the options. You know? Freeze it up. It took me 15 minutes to get my shirt off. But the checkers game was about to go down. Felt good. Lights went off. I was excited. And Claudia's sister starts banging on the door. She's like, Claudia, Claudia, you got to get him out of here. Dad's home. Dad's home. I'm like, yeah, oh, shit. There's a railroad apartment in East New York, Brooklyn. You know, there's only one way out. So she's looking at me. She's like, Gaston, you got to hop out the window. And I don't know if y'all see me. You know, like I don't fly, I don't float. It's not what I do. Me and Gravity are very close friends. You know. Now granted, it's only 15 feet, it's the first floor, but that's still too much for me. I ain't trying to hurt myself. But this is East New York, Brooklyn. There's a lot of robberies in there. So there's, there's the metal bars keeping both criminals out and you in, you know? And it extends past the air conditioning unit on the adjacent window. So I'm like, oh, I'm gonna just stand on top of the AC unit. You know, so I, I kick out the, 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 the frame, I get out, and I stand on the AC unit right as the dad walks in the room. You know, I made it. But his, her dad's a sharp dude, he's trying to put it together. He's like, yo, why, why are the lights off? Why is the window open? Why is my bed a mess? You know, and Claudia, she's sharp, you know. She's like, oh, uh, I was going to do the laundry, got real hot in here, opened up the window. Try to save you some time, Dad. Clever girl. You know. So he looks around, he walks out, and I'm feeling great. I got away with this. Start to relax. As much as you can relax on the air conditioning unit in East New York, Brooklyn. My shoulders drop, I feel good. Then two cops walk by the side of the building. <laughs> now, I don't know if you guys been to neighborhoods like mine. You know, there's a couple issues with cops and people that live there. You can talk after the show. <laughs> you know, but I figured it out. I know what the issue is, right? See, because cops, they make great suggestions. I listen to them all the time. Stop, slow down, freeze, put your hands up, turn down the music, all great suggestions. I listen every time. You know why? Because in general, when a cop is telling you something, they know more about the situation than you do. The problem with cops in my neighborhood is they don't want to accept that on occasion, I might know more about the situation than they do. So for example, when you yell out, excuse me, sir, I'm trying to calculate in my head, how do I explain to this guy as quickly and as efficiently as possible? Yo, my man, I'm trying to play checkers with this girl. I'm 18, she's 18, completely legal. Her dad just got home, he's not gonna care. He's gonna try to kill me, then I'ma actually need you. How can we avoid all this? 
So I came up with this. This is what I said verbatim. Yo, Jim. It's never good when you have to whisper and scream at the same time. You know. Now the veteran cop, you know, he gets more adamant. He's like, what was that, sir? So I'm like, yo, chill. You know. Thankfully, he had like a younger partner, you know. He taps him on the shoulder. He's like, yo, hold on a second. He goes to the front of the house, comes in through the yard, and he comes up. He's like, hey, what's going on? I'm like, yo, my man. I'm trying to play checkers with this girl. Her dad just got home, but once he leaves, everything's cool. He looks at me, gives me a knowing head nod. Walks around, tells his partners, they laugh and leave, I'm two for two. Stuff of legends here, you know? Now I'm feeling confident, you know, I'm feeling great. And Claudia runs to the window. She's like, Gaston, I need your pants. <laughs> Ain't really the time and place for that, you know? I'm like, what are you talking about, Claudia? She said, Gaston, you got dressed in the dark. Those are my dad's work pants. I need the pants. <laughs> Dickies was in style back then. You know? Now, I don't know if you've ever tried taking off your pants when you had your arm in the cast 15 feet in the air while standing on the air conditioning unit before. It's a bit of a challenge. You know, I kicked off my boots. They fell to the yard. I let the pants slide down, grabbed them with my left arm, Try to throw them to the window, completely missed, they hit the yard. <laughs> Claudia looks at me, shaking her head, she runs in the bomb town. I like, I'll make this climb. So I hang off for the grating, fall down, hurt my ankle, <laughs> ball up the pants, and I'm looking up at the window trying to figure out how I'm gonna throw them up. And the cops come back again. <laughs> now the younger cop, He's looking at me like this. He's like, yo, what the fuck? Because he vouched for me, you know? Like, he told his friend I was cool, you know? So they waved me over. Before he even starts, I'm like, yo, my man, nothing's changed. And the older cop, he's like, you had pants on before, sir. Everything's changed. So I go through it with him again. I'm like, all right, my man, like I said, I'm trying to play checkers with this girl. Dad just got home. Accidentally put the dad's pants on. That's on me. <laughs> I'm going to own that. But once I get the pants off to Claudia, she'll get the pants to her dad. Dad will leave and everything's cool. Word of advice for everybody here. You tend to lose a little bit of credibility when you try to talk with police officers without your pants on. 
take that home with you today. That's for you. <laughs> oh, the cop was like, I'm sorry. I, I, I got to find out what's going on. He starts walking towards the front of the door. I'm pleading with him as we walk along the fence. And Claudia runs out to the window. She's like, Gaston, quick. Dad's in the bathroom. Throw him up. And I look at the cop, and he's like, I got to see you try. That's my man right there, you know? So I run over to the window, you know? Now, I'm Dominican. I could throw all day. Hire me for your softball teams. I got you. But that's for my right arm. Left-handed, throwing pants 15 feet into the air. There's wind factor involved. I don't know all the math. I just know it's hard to do. Six throws in, my arm is sore as shit. Now the cops are taking bets on the side. They bet lunch money that I wasn't gonna make it in under 10 throws. Young cop won a turkey and cheese sandwich because of me. I made it in nine. Hell yeah. So Claudia catches the pants, she goes in, and the cop waves me over, you know. So I grab my Tims, I walk over to them. And the older cop is like, we gonna wait this one out, that's cool with you? I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of vested in this game of checkers, sir. <laughs> you know, wait another 10 minutes, and Claudia's dad walks out the front door, in his car, and goes to his job. They escort me to the front of the building. They ring the bell, and Claudia opens up. And the older cop is like, do you know this man? And Claudia's like, you think I catch everybody's pants out the window, sir? <laughs> Then the older cop, he tried to get slick with us. He's like, you know, I don't care that you guys are playing checkers, but it's usually a good idea for you guys to be in the same room when you do so. <laughs> Admittedly solid advice. <laughs> you know, then the younger cop, he's like, yo man, don't worry about it. I've been there before. <laughs> I'm like, you've been here before. What is your life like? Like, what, what's going on with you? How did you pass the exam to get your job? <laughs> they chuckle, and they leave us to it. And I play a glorious game of checkers. <laughs> Stuff of legends. Thank you, it does deserve a clap. It was good work, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know? Cause that was my prime, like I can't move like that no more. I got no lefts, you know, it's all right, no pivot. Exactly, you know. So a few years later, you know, I'm older now, I got, I got a few buildings with my dad, I'm a landlord in East New York. And uh, we had a break-in in the building that I actually live in, one of my tenants had a break-in. So uh, my dad gets there before me, so I rush there after work, and I see my dad talking with a bunch of cops. And I also see a now much older, younger cop. And he's like, hey, you look good. And I'm like, I know, I got pants on. You know. And I hear my dad in the background talking to the captain. He's like, yo, man, I thought the neighborhood was getting better. Can't believe we still got break-ins. And they walking over to us. 
And the younger cop looks at me and winks. He tells my dad, man, you wouldn't believe the things I say. I became a freelance writer um, on the side. I was a musician. And uh, because of my experience, I just ended up doing the pop culture beat. So I would get sent to Coachella to ask kids if they know who Paul McCartney is. Or I'd go to Comic-Con to take photos of really great Khaleesi's, <laughs> um, which was fun. But I began to notice that um, friends around me, people I knew, were doing things that I considered slightly more worthwhile. Um, <laughs> like going to Turkey and becoming an expert on authoritarianism or exposing injustice um, all around the world. And I started to think, well, I've been doing this writing thing for a while. Maybe, maybe I can use it to um, talk about something that is vaguely of worth. Um, so I thought about it, and there was this story that I had been thinking about ever since I was a kid in Hong Kong. So the thing about Hong Kong, it's a very beautiful city. I'm sure some of you have been there, and you think it's beautiful. <laughs> exactly. Um, but the income inequality is very, very stark. Um, to my mind, the wealth gap is most visible on a Sunday which is the day that the city's domestic workers, migrant domestic workers, have their day off, and they have to spend it outside. Um, so the situation with that is that there are 400,000 domestic workers in Hong Kong. They're mostly women. I would say almost all of them are women. They come from the Philippines, Indonesia, Thailand, and Southeast Asian countries. I and mean, they've all signed this contract called the Standard Contract. Um, which pays them 550 US dollars per month, um, gives them one day off every week, and forces them to live with their employers. And Hong Kong is one of the densest cities in the world, so that usually means a tiny room in a small apartment. But in extreme cases, I've heard it can mean sleeping in the toilet. So the point is that they have nowhere that is really truly their own. And on the one day of the week, which belongs to them, they have to go outside. Um, and they turn the public space in the city into this crazy, amazing fiesta. Like women everywhere. You can't imagine it. Um, women on the street, women under the roads, women in tents, on cardboard boxes, on the escalators, drinking, dancing, singing, laughing, clawing back the expression um, that is denied to them in the rest of the week. While the whole city usually is just walking like this, like they can't see. Um, so I thought about that. Um, even when I wasn't in Hong Kong, because it really sticks with you, that image. And um, when my parents moved back to Hong Kong when I was an adult, the first time I went back to visit them, I was going to the mall, and I saw this group of women sitting on the ground. It was a Sunday, and they were next to this car park. It was really 
um, like it really was on the road and there was exhaust and it's Hong Kong, there's pollution, you can smell it, you can see it. And they were passing around this pristine white wedding dress, this beautiful wedding dress, because it was a bridal shower. Um, and I was just so caught by that image. So I thought about what I wanted to write about. And I was like, I will write about the Sunday gatherings. So the next time I was in Hong Kong to visit my parents, I went out on a Sunday and I started asking questions. Um, it was very quick, very quick process to find stories about conditions that you and I would very easily call slavery. Um, one woman called Althea was being filmed 24 hours a day by her employer, even in her bedroom. Another woman, I mean, lots of women were starving because their employers would only pay for the bare minimum of food. Um, and they never left the house because they were working all the time. So they would tell me these stories and we would be sitting on cardboard um, that an old woman had sold to them. And at the end of the day, she would pick up the cardboard and the next week she would sell it to them again. Um, so that's where we were. And they would tell me these stories in this super matter-of-fact way. And then they'd be like, sit, eat macaroni. Um, and I would just hang with them. And because when you are um, a kid walking through this stuff, it feels like it should be a totally different world. You know, like it's a completely different environment suddenly. Um, but when, as an adult, I was sitting there with them, I was like, okay, well, what they're doing is not super far away from what I do all the time, which is they're looking at their phones and they're on Facebook. And so the process happened that I would sit, we would talk, we would, they would tell me their stories, I would write them down, and then we would add each other on Facebook. And they'd be like, this is my son. And I'd be like, this is my nephew. Um, and then the next day I would wake up and I'd have like a million likes on all my photos. <laughs> because it turns out that I had made those types of friends that will like anything you post, <laughs> even if it's an accident from your pocket. Um, you know, like when you have a cousin that you're friends with on Instagram, it's like a definite like. <laughs> so one day I was walking through the gatherings and I saw this group of women and they were holding a big banner and the banner said, we love Jadeen. They looked unusually happy even for the fe festival. I call it a festival. They looked very, very happy. So I had to stop and ask them what was going on. And um, that's how I met a woman called Cha. And Cha told me that Jadeen are a Filipino pop duo, um, boy-girl, and they're made of James Reed, who was a contestant on Philippines' Big Brother and was discovered, and Nadine Lustra, um, who was on the same management company as him, and they were put together, and they became a band, and then they fell in love. And Cha and her friends were the Hong Kong chapter of their fan club. And they were all domestic workers, and they'd all met from the internet, and they spent every Sunday together, and um, they talked mostly about how much they loved Jadeen. So I thought this was a pretty amazing story, because, first of all, it couldn't have happened without recent technology, like, you know, social media, so it was pretty new. And also, I don't think I've ever seen anyone in Hong Kong that was so happy. Um, let alone people working under conditions that I previously described to you. So I was like, okay, um, we should talk more. And so me and Char kept in touch. I had to leave Hong Kong 
And then I came back again a while later. Um, and in that time, we were interacting a lot on the internet. And I had grown very fond of her um, because she posts these amazing selfies of herself in remote places in Hong Kong that I've never seen before. And the hashtag would be like, just me. <laughs> and I just, I just think she's so amazing. And um, one day we were WhatsApping, and she was calling me Miss Emma, which made me feel really, really uncomfortable. But I didn't know how to tell her that. So I wrote back, Miss Cha. And she sent me like five emojis of this face. And then after that, neither of us called each other Miss, and I knew that we were on the same wavelength. So this, these are the interactions that happen in the interim before I see her from that first meeting and the, sec the second. So over that time, I say, look, I'm coming back to Hong Kong. I'd love to interview the fan club. What are you doing? Can I spend the day with you? And she was like, sure. You can come to mass with me next Sunday, and then we can go to Pizza Hut where we're going to throw a birthday party for James. And I was like, OK, let's do that. So um, at Pizza Hut, skipping mass, although that was really fun, <laughs> we go to Pizza Hut, and we light candles. And there's seven Jadines. They call themselves the Jadines. Um, but I'll call them the fan club. There's seven fan club members, and there's me. And no one's wearing their uniform today. And they usually wear the same t-shirt. Um, just to identify them as the JD and fan club. Um, but they are wearing their promise rings, which are modeled on a ring that James gave Nadine after he declared his love to her in February. Um, so I'm a little suspicious of James and Nadine's love. <laughs> Partly because they're not the only love duo in Filipino pop. There's also like Maywood, which is May and Edward, and several other names that are like an amalgamation of two lovers' names. And it just, just comes across as a little too easy then, romantic arc, that um, they can sell tour tickets and merchandise as they are slowly becoming one. But I don't say this because I'm at his birthday party. And that would be extremely rude. Um, so the fan club are talking in Tagalog for a while, Tagalog being the, um, the language, like the Mandarin of the Philippines. Um, and then they speak in English for me. And I'm like, I'm so sorry you have to speak in English. Like, just forget it. Don't worry about me. Um, and they're like, no, 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 we all speak different dialects, and English is just as unifying as Tagalog. Like, it's fine. They're trying so hard to make me feel comfortable. Um, everyone is married or has a boyfriend except me and Char. And at one point, I say, as I often do, I don't think I ever want to get married. Um, and everyone goes, <gasps> and looks so sad. And... I realize that they feel really quite sorry for me. Um, and I have noticed this quite a lot, um, that as I've been doing interviews, people do feel sympathy for me, because I'm 33, and I'm unmarried, and I have no children. Um, that's fine. <laughs> um, so I just like experience that. Um, 
they show me pictures of James and Nadine. We do that thing um, where we go through their Instagram and they're like, this is when they went on that yacht. And this is when they went, played in Queens. Um, and we laugh and we tease and we have just the greatest time. So after Pizza Hut, I'm told that we're gonna go to some public bleachers to wait out the rest of the afternoon until curfew. And I'm like, what's curfew? And they tell me that most of their employees require them home by seven o'clock. And I'm like, okay, this I will say out loud, that's not the legal 24 hours that you're entitled to according to your contract. And they're like, yeah. And they feel really, really sad, but it's really clear to me that they don't feel sad for themselves. They feel sad for the other people who have to work under these conditions. And I'm like, okay, you cannot make this fan club feel sad for themselves. And I think that that's because, I mean, like, that's what we do as people. You know, um, we just deal with our situation and we have a resilience that other people can't imagine, but they probably have in their own lives. But I will say that in particular, these women that I've met have an extra level of resilience that I can't quite believe. So we're leaving Pizza Hut with some cake left over. And we're weaving through the streets of Hong Kong um, it's really busy because it's rugby sevens and there's lots of tourists. And me and Char just naturally fall back and we just stop talking. And she tells me about how she got her teaching degree um, in the Philippines and about once she lost someone close to her. And she tells me about a love affair she had that went wrong. And I tell her about my love affair that's going wrong. <laughs> Um, and she tells me about all the islands in the Philippines and a Mardi Gras celebration that happens every year in her hometown. And I think she would be an amazing teacher and I really hope that one day she will be. Um, and we just keep walking and eventually she says to me, you're a really good listener. And I just feel like such a cheat because I'm interviewing her really. So that's not being a good listener. But then I remember that I turned my recorder off at Pizza Hut because I had made the decision that I was no longer there as a journalist. I was just hanging out. Um, so we make it to the bleachers and uh, the fan club buy a round of bubble tea and they don't let me pay for my own bubble tea, no matter what subterfuge I try to use. Um, and we spend the rest of the day in the super hot May sun in Hong Kong watching this soccer team yell at each other in Cantonese. Um, and we, we look at our phones and we take loads of photos and there's a selfie stick at some point, <laughs> quite a few. And we just have a really, really good time. Um, and I realize that I don't care if Jay Dean are manufacturing their emotions to sell things. Um, at this point because they brought these women together and they give them a great deal of joy in a city that I think is actively trying to extract joy from their lives. At the end of the day, Cha and I are talking again and I say, <laughs> I've got a bit complainy and I say that on a recent trip to China, I felt I had to drink too much tea to which Cha says, yes, I agree. When my employer's Chinese relatives come over, I have to spend the whole day washing teacups. 
And in that, I'm completely jolted back to reality because I had completely forgotten about her job. I had completely forgotten that I had come there on that day to wait for information about her job and write it down. So I hope you can see from this that I'm not a very good social justice reporter. <laughs> um, but I think that's okay, because a lot of people have written about the Sunday gatherings over the years, um, and I can still write about them, and we can still talk about it, and we can still hope to make things better and change the contract. But in this particular situation, um, I'm better off as a friend. And I didn't really have a lot of friends in Hong Kong because I left when I was young, and I only hang out with my family. But now I have seven. Um, and I've been back on those bleachers three times since that day. And next month when I visit, the first thing I'm going to do is go out on a Sunday and grab a bubble tea and sit there and talk. performance of the song Good Time by Lily Konigsberg. And before that, you heard stories from Gastor Almonte and Emily Moss. Uh, this whole podcast and all these versions of the Tell theme song are recorded at Four Foot Studios in Brooklyn by Gabriel Galvin. And the version of the Tell theme written by a fool on this episode has Dita Pelled on guitar, and I'm going to be singing it, and that's just going to be in a second. Um, if you'd like to see the Tell sometime uh, or find out more, you can go to thetellstories.com. And uh, that's it. This is episode 17 of The Tell. Baby, I like your story. Story you won't tell. But I witnessed how it unspooled. It's brilliant because it's written.
lost her cool It's brilliant cause it's written by a fool It's written 